Welcome to TalkScript, a superset of a podcast about JavaScript. The presenting sponsor of TalkScript is SitePen, a JavaScript consultancy helping companies improve their apps, tools, and teams. Check it out at sitepen.com. Let's find out if TalkScript is your type of podcast. Hello, and welcome to TalkScript. I'm your host, Brian Forbes. I have with me today, as always, my friends and co-hosts, Paul Shannon. Hello, hello. Nick Neeson. Hoi, hoi. And you've all come to know and love him, Neil Roberts. It's an honor just to be nominated. And I'm glad that we nominated you. Mm-hmm. All right. Wait, we did? Don't worry about it. You can it. be nominated for anything, Paul. Yep. I nomina- Doesn't need to be something good. I nominated him for this podcast episode. So he's here to accept his award, which is to record this episode. So let's do that. Today we got some fun stuff to talk about. I think we want to start out with some news. Do we have any news? Any new news? Hmm. Any releases? Yeah, TypeScript 3.8 came out. 3.8. What do we get from TypeScript 3.8? We get top-level await, I think, is the, the main one that we get in that. Top-level awaits and, like, importing of type-only. Type-only yeah, yeah, imports. Type-only imports and exports. I just meant useful stuff. While mm, that is yeah. useful, <laughs> it's not really useful to most people or me, so... <laughs> Well, it's do you not want do you not if want it, side effects that code yeah. has, or do you want side effects that code shouldn't have? Would it be more useful if it were in iambic pentameter, Nick? <laughs> For sure. I mean, technically, code shouldn't have side effects, right? It depends. We live in like a broken it, world. But it's 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 history, right? We we have oh, sure. a, For sure. we have a history where without modules, you have to have side effects. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For sure. Great. I think the top level weight is going to be one of the big ones. That's mm-hmm. going to be great. What do you think about the the controversies around that? It's not really a controversy, I don't think, but I mean, what was what is the controversy? I'll be the rube here. What's so controversial? Well, Brian, if you had a module that is doing a top level weight to, I don't know, fetch some data from somewhere and that fails, it's going to fail importing every module after that, right? Because it's not, it's not going to be able to resolve that module. Anything that depends on it will fail. To be honest with you, like, I think that's just one of the... I mean, what, what happens if you have code in your module that throws an exception? There you go. Same problem, right? It's the same problem. Or dependency, it fails to load, fails to load right? Yeah, exactly. Or if you didn't use a top-level weight, you just had a promise that did stuff. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, I get the issue, but I mean, we already have those issues. This just seems to be a similar one with new syntax. I think the main thing is it <laughs> the module can't really export anything until that resolves. Yeah. Whereas if you just had like a top-level promise or a top-level async iffy, it will resolve and then that part will just fail. Okay, so now that you've said this, I have to ask, you can't export anything until an async resolves? Until a top-level awaited promise resolves my understanding of exports were placeholders though paul <laughs> i'm just saying <laughs> i'm so sorry maybe we should do an episode on this yeah we should mm-hmm. invite some people on the show oh yeah. yeah hey you remember when dojo did synchronous loads mm-hmm. i mean yeah and it was it was nice it was great it was great terrible but great terrible mm-hmm. 
I think it resulted in a warning in the browser, right? <laughs> Eventually, once browsers, you know, got wise, said stop using synchronous XHR. <laughs> eh, you know, just ignore that warning. Anyway, <laughs> all right. So that's the news. What do we got for our show today, guys? I'm trying to think of a funny acronym: Animals Sensing Trouble. Awesome safety tips. Yeah. Hold on. Hold on. What is AST? Uh, Surgical Technology Conference. Hmm. American Surgical Technologies. Aspart Asparte Professional Financial Services. Hmm. Lab testing. Asparte Amino Transfer. I can't even say that. Add some tooling. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That sounds right. <laughs> Why not? Go for it. So I think we're talking about ASTs. We're talking about ASTs. Well, Nick. Which we all know stands for add some tooling, right? <laughs> add some tooling, yeah. Nick, why don't you fill us in on what ASTs are? Sure. I can do an abstract on what abstract syntax trees are. Would you do it in Alaska Standard Time? Ooh, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so an abstract syntax tree is it's a way to understand code or an abstract way of viewing the actual syntax of a tree which is your code. So it's a way to like, you could think of it as like a JSON format for describing exactly what code is, because to us, we can just read code, but when code is actually run by, by the interpreter, it has to be broken down into its fundamental components so that the computer can understand what it's actually trying to, to do when it runs that code. And so, you know, we have things like comments and things like const and let and var keywords and, then like names of variables, values, and all of that has to be understood by the interpreter. And so an abstract syntax tree is a way to take the code that you you have and look at it in more of a, a broken down and very descriptive way of identifying every single piece of that code. And it doesn't have to be in JSON. Most no. Most JavaScript tools produce JSON because that's what we're used to. Yeah, th that's just a handy way to to think about it. Yeah, for sure. Because it is a tree and, and you can think of JSON as a tree, right? Yeah, for sure. For sure. I'm just thinking you can produce Python ASTs and those are usually in Python objects. And so each language, I bet you could do one in XML if you wanted to. Yeah. Most ASTs are like kept in memory as linked lists or something, aren't they? Like as actual trees? Probably. I mean, I couldn't tell if that was a joke or not. <laughs> Fine, fair. Okay. I'm just like, <laughs> is, is he trying to tell the joke? <laughs> no. It tells you how dry my jokes are. <laughs> I was waiting for you to start grinning, and then I was going to laugh, and then you never grinned. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that's a serious question. Crap. <laughs> I withdraw my questions. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, I mean, it would depend on the, on the uh, AST, whether it's just a forward-looking AST or if there's parent references, too. So, Nick, what, what sort of things can you do with an AST? Yeah, so you can use an abstract syntax tree to write other tools to better understand your code or to manipulate that code and then re-export it as new code. That's probably the most common case and what definitely what I've used it for. So you could take code that's written one way, break it down into an AST, and then spit out new, fresh code that has some modifications to it after you've tweaked that tree. Do AST systems usually have a way to both parse code into the tree and then also take the tree and spit it back out as uh, code? Yeah. 
Yeah, typically. So there's a lot of different tools. So if you're thinking about this from a TypeScript perspective, TypeScript itself has AST tooling in it. And so it can take in the code, the JavaScript or TypeScript, and then turn that into an AST and then spit back out code. But there's other tools as well. Like one is called uh, JS CodeShift. That's a really popular one in the JavaScript world. And that's from Facebook. And that relies on two other projects, AST types, which defines all of the, the types for the nodes within the tree. And then recast, which allows you to take the AST and then pretty print it back out. And that pretty printing can do things like match the original code style and keep spacing, keep tabs versus spaces, all of the fun arguments that we typically have. It can understand and and try and spit, spit it back out so that it doesn't actually modify the style of your code. Right. It's actually kind of interesting because there's quite a few tools out there that, that use an AST. A few that people are probably familiar with are TSLint and ESLint. So if you've ever written a plugin for for them, then you are probably familiar with using some some form of AST. And I remember JS Lint and all of the fun tools before those came out. One of the reasons why I said what I did, Paul, about your question about linked lists is that in the old days, in the olden days, I'm going to get my cane out and I'm going to shake my fist at the world here. But back in my day, we had a tool, I can't remember which one it was, and the AST, certain parts of it, you couldn't get back to the parent. So you couldn't tell, for instance, like where a comment showed up in the code. You just knew that the code had a comment in it. So it like it kept all your comments in this like list as a property on the document object, but you didn't know where those comments actually showed up in the tree, in the abstract syntax tree because the the commenting system was put in afterwards. So the ASTs that we have nowadays are are a lot better. I would imagine there's there's ways to get around from parent to child. Mm-hmm. But my experience with ASTs has not been good because <laughs> the ASTs we had at the time were or that were produced at the time were generally used for like Uglify or other code compressors and obfuscators and they weren't really about analyzing the code for linting and rewriting the code to be useful like you see with prettier or something like that so is that part of early dojo or dojo one stuff you're making me go back in my memory and i can barely remember yesterday so i want to say that what i'm remembering had to do with uglify which would have been the dojo one build tool and i'm guessing it had to do with like source maps or some sort of comments that we wanted to to keep. So if we wanted to retain comments within the Uglify source or something like that, we were trying to do that in the AST that was produced and we were trying to hook into didn't have a way to tell us, oh, this comment showed up at line or like before this node. Hmm. It just threw the comments at the bottom. (laughs) it was super helpful so i think one of the biggest takeaways here is that even from the early days of the web you were probably using asts in some way if even if you weren't working with them directly tools that you might be using like uglify or or other tools like that might have been using them under the covers and today's tooling is no different there's a lot of tools jshint eslint 
prettier. They're all using those tools to help you by really understanding the code you're writing and then building on top of that to to build helpful tooling that knows everything about your code. Yeah, so the when you compile TypeScript, it actually uses the AST to output JavaScript, right? Yes. And so ASTs and, and the availability of ASTs is and having access to them from the TypeScript compiler or the TypeScript service, that's basically a way to work around not having, for instance, plugins or something along the TypeScript compiler. So if you need to do something with the language, you can do it externally writing your own product, keeping them kind of separate or compartmentalized. Yeah. So you could write a tool that uses the internals of the TypeScript compiler to do that? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, rather than having an extension or a plugin hierarchy that TypeScript could be extended, you can actually just use this directly to create things that are products from your code. So for instance, I know people are using it for like transpiling types to JSON schema, things like that, that kind of communicate between different domains. So yeah, there's there's a lot of interesting things that you can do with that. And if you go to the the TypeScript wiki on GitHub, they have an example of generating a DTS file from a JavaScript file. And it's reading in that JavaScript file, creating a tree from it, and then looping through that, outputting type definitions. I like the idea of being able to transform TypeScript into something bigger than than just the language, you know, just JavaScript, or adding to it in ways that are valuable, especially if you need to automate mm-hmm. something. So a lot of the tooling, what it does is it, it has the ability to create the abstract syntax tree. And there are a number of different formats for that. Each tool might use a different type of format to interpret what a particular node is, for example, and all the properties that are associated with that. But then other tools that are associated with that, probably the biggest one outside of taking an abstract syntax tree and re-outputting it as as the language would be a querying tool. So being able to say, I want to find all of my variable declarations in a file and then be able to do something with those nodes, just those nodes. Yeah. Didn't you do something like that? initially looking at like the dojo migration tools yeah yeah so as part of the continuous improvements that we're doing to dojo we have a project called cli upgrade app which is part of our dojo cli and it is using code mods particularly it's using js code shift that ast tool from facebook to perform queries on all of the files so when you run this it can go through an entire project look at every single file and so the file itself would be the top level node and it would go through everything and we're querying specifically for any nodes that would match import statements is a really really simple one if you remember from dojo i believe two to three we consolidated from eight packages down to one package the dojo framework package and we wanted to be able to take all of those other packages and imports that you might have already been doing and just rewrite those for you because why make you do that work when a tool like this can really get in there and do it in a really simple way for you. And so just that tool, being able to take those eight packages and convert them into one package is only 26 lines of TypeScript. So it's not really that much. And it's just querying for any import statements and looking at what you're trying to import. And if it matches one of the old Dojo imports, then it's going to rename that for you by changing the the properties on the node and then re-output that. And that's it. Cool. That's kind of interesting. I wonder I wonder what else you can do to if you're rewriting your own code. Like can you add in environmental variables or like 
things that you want to have exactly at compile time that you don't want to write into your code or check into a, a repo, but have them available later on as you're compiling. I know in Dojo, we allied some imports based on conditional statements and things like that. Yeah, it'd be really neat to actually go in and, and see how far you can push the language. Yeah. Uh, is this how some of the tools that, that kind of ship with TypeScript work? Like the where they have some of the refactoring tools that they integrate with VS Code? I would think so. I wouldn't say I'm an expert on, on the TypeScript project to know how it's working internally, but I would think that that's what it's doing. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a good, just general something to know for when you do need to do a larger refactor in, in your project. Right. Uh, this is a simple case, but you know, if we had a major project, like a huge project that had thousands of files in it, it would take a developer hours to go through and change imports. Whereas writing, in this case, 26 lines of, of JavaScript to go do it for you, it's much, much simpler. And this is really the the benefit of the abstract syntax tree is when I think about a problem like that, my mind immediately would go, well, I can just, you know, regex or grep through this and then figure out how to do that. That's not very safe because, you know, you could have things inside of comments or or whatever. But because this is being broken down into all of the, the core elements of the language, it knows if something is a comment or not, because that's a child of an open comment token. And so it knows that you're inside of a comment and it doesn't have to do anything there. It knows exactly what everything is. And so you're really safe to do these kinds of modifications. And then of course, backing that up with proper version control, you know, you run this and then you can just look at the diff and make sure that everything looks okay and you're good. Yeah. I wish I had this. Uh, I remember when I wrote the Dojo one, or I guess we're calling it Dojo toolkit now, documentation system, there is nothing that we could use that would reliably extract it wouldn't reliably turn our convoluted class declaration syntax into something that we could actually piece together into documentation. So I wrote this whole parser and everything that was just such a mess. I really wish I had an AST version of it. I remember in the early days, actually, one of the first things I did when I joined SitePen was work on this this workshop tool. And it had a, a syntax highlighter for for code that we wanted to put on slides. And I wanted a way to highlight regular expressions within that. And so I, I tried to make a regular expression that could detect regular expressions. And I thought I almost had Are you it. insane? <laughs> right? It ended up being <laughs> no 103 characters long. And there was still... Each one of them deadly. <laughs> yes. You could tweak that. <laughs> there were still cases that would break that. But for the most part, it did work. And then just ended up switching to a tool that I believe used ASTs under the cover. So it just ended up working. But... <laughs> yeah, there are much better ways to do this with ASTs. You're insane. <laughs> I'll try and find that for the show notes. <laughs> yeah, one of the interesting things about being able to actually parse JavaScript code is that you could go back and identify parts of your code in bundled code. And so if you're trying to figure out like what code goes to what, it gives you an interesting opportunity to introspect your code in in a way that you probably couldn't if you were like a regular human being, I guess. Because, um, you know, you can't going through bundled code or, or anything like that is, is terrible, but TypeScript can actually parse it out and give it to you in it, at least an AST. I don't know about a human readable form, but an AST. And it gives you an opportunity to then compare that to other code and other code trees. So, for instance, if you wanted to find code that had an exploit in it that you knew it was a known exploit, you could look for that, that pattern then and look for similar patterns from your code base into release mm -hmm. code. 
Yeah, that's really true. And now like in, for me, the first thing I would do is start grepping for that and see if I can get there with, with just doing greps, because that's obviously much easier, right? It's the, the lowest barrier to entry to get some results and see. But then if that was more of an ongoing thing, or if it was something that wasn't really easily greppable, then that's where you can start writing tools like this on your own. And you could have a tool, like a CLI tool that you create that uses this and you could check any code. Like if you were a security researcher, for example, you could have this as like a tool that you just deploy to check the code for for exactly what you're looking for. Well, that's a, I guess that's a question I have is what is the barrier to entry to getting started with messing with your own AST? So you have to you have to realize that, again, it's just a tree that it's being parsed into. And there are a number of different trees. So like Babel has its own tree that it's it's creating. TypeScript has its own. And then tools that use them, like Prettier, might have their own as well. But you can figure out what the tree looks like, or you can generate it using that that tool. And the easiest way to get started with that is just to go to astexplorer.net. It's a really cool site that gives you some example code, but then you can just paste in your own code and it will give you your code on the left and the AST on the right. And you can see exactly what that code is. And if you start clicking around, I think, in the, the tree, it will highlight the pieces of the code on the left that you're you're currently looking at. So it's a really easy way for you to just with your own eyes scan and understand the AST that's being generated from that code. And then you can use this as a reference tool while you're building out your tools that are actually using ASTs and go from there. So this is probably the easiest way to just get a feel for ASTs and what they are. And then from there, probably the easiest tool or or a very popular tool is JS Code Shift because it wraps these other tools and gives you this API for taking a file, for example, and then being able to query that and then call a two source method at the end. So you can query for, you know, particular pieces of it, change those nodes and then call to source and it will output the same code with those modifications. And that's using another tool that I mentioned called recast. So that tool is heuristically trying to look at the code as it exists when you, when it imports it and seeing, okay, you were using tabs here and you're using single quotes instead of double quotes. So I'm going to set all of that when I re-export, so I'm not changing all of these settings and causing a huge crazy diff. Instead, it's just trying to follow exactly what you are already doing and matching those styles. And does the AST Explorer kind of help you with figure out some of those queries? It can, yeah. There's another piece of it that will allow you to turn on different transforms. So you can say, I want to see, I, w- I want to start a JS code shift file. And it, so it will take, it'll give you some sample code of exactly how you might go search for a query or if you're Working with Prettier, it'll show you the the Prettier syntax that goes into parsing that code or different pieces like that. Well, it makes me think of when XPath was a usable way of finding nodes in a document that I used to, that's what I used to do is go to the little, there was like a little XPath helper in the browser that would help me figure out how to get to that node. Totally. Yeah. It's really, really cool, really handy way to to get started just understanding what all of this is, because, you know, that's something that I don't really keep in my brain is when I'm working with this, if I want to transform this code into JS code shift, I don't necessarily know, you know, that this, this particular node is called a a statement or, or whatever. So I, I can just look at that and use that to help me understand how, what API calls I need to make with the tool I'm using. So JS code shift in this case to actually find the nodes that I want and then how to manipulate them. So I guess what I'm getting at is 
Is it practical to be able to, to use ASTs to do some refactoring in your code? Or is there just a lot of overhead that would make it impractical? I think so. I think that there's a, a large learning curve. And I think that just the name, you know, AST, it's got an acronym and then it has tree in there. So a data structure. So it sounds intimidating. And there is a bit of ramp up, you know, learning the different pieces of it and then figuring out how to query and manipulate those nodes and then re-export. JS CodeShift makes that pretty simple with its API, but there is a little bit of a learning curve. But like I said, if you had, in the case of like changing import statements, if you were doing some kind of heavy refactoring, if you did that all by hand, it's going to take hours potentially, depending on how how big your code base is, whether your your developers are trying to do it manually or with like a an awk tool, or if they they want to just take the time to to write a tool that can can just handle it for them. And so that's kind of the trade-off, I think. If you if you think that it'll take you less time to figure out JS Code Shift, write the tool and then run it versus manually doing all of the work yourself, you can probably save yourself a lot of time. And then the next time you run into a problem like that, you're going to be pretty quick. Yeah. And I was thinking for like, for being more sure that you're doing the thing that you want to do. I mean, I love regular expressions, but there's some times where I know that I just can't write the exact right thing to actually be able to find the thing I want to like search and replace for. So that's where like doing a manipulation through AST, even if all I was doing is looking for the th- pieces of my code that I'm worried about, right? Like even if I'm not doing the whole rigmarole, being able to like use it like a regular expression seems enticing to me. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Especially if it's only like 30 lines of code. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think another cool use case of this is something that Brian brought up earlier is a lot of the tools that you might be using already, like ESLint, are using AST. And so you can write your own custom plugins to say, oh, find all regular expressions that have 103 characters in them and give me a warning about that so that I can never touch the code base. (laughs) (laughs) Make your own custom rules that are using the AST to accomplish that. I think that that's a, a really practical way to use ASTs today. So you're saying you should just fail your code if it has a regular expression. <laughs> you could. 300 characters or 103 characters. <laughs> it has characters more than five long. characters. <laughs> That's a good rule of thumb I like right regular there. expressions. <laughs> Yo, dog, it looks like you're using a regular expression to find regular expressions. <laughs> Definitely a problem. <laughs> if it's something that will be reused a lot or is of particular use to others on the team, then this makes total sense. And it's way easier than passing them a shell script that's doing some grepping because it's going to be way less error prone. Right, right. Okay. Like if you're Google and you have like a mono repo of all of your TypeScript in the entire company, mm-hmm. writing a quick AST parser might might be a good way of applying something to all the projects. But then to your point, Brian, like ESLint is using it, right? So maybe a really practical thing to do is to do some kind of code detection for for things that are very specific to your project and then shipping that as like a a plugin for all of the developers to use. Mm -hmm. What other ideas? If you're, if you're using Babel, I I would imagine they have an AST as well. Yeah. Yeah. I guess to that point, I think that that's, that's one of the more recent changes to Babel, right? Is, is an update to its AST so that it understands TypeScript and knows just to remove those, remove the type annotations and then pass that along through the Babel chain. I'm assuming that that's done with ASTs as well, but again, I could be wrong. I was going to ask a question. What, what other practical use cases could you guys think of for ASTs? I'm not sure exactly how, how, like if we use AST or just 
some other in- intermediate system, but anywhere where there's a breakdown between different systems seems like a really cool way to handle it. I mean, the example I was thinking of was with an API where you can tell what the entry points are in your API, depending on what server you're using. And then you should be able to, you know, recommunicate that using interfaces to a uh, API on the client side, right? Those sort of systems where you can automate your interface between systems that, that can't talk to each other other than by wire feels like it would be a good fit. That is interesting. That that seems pretty cool. And I, like I was thinking of other ideas too, like, I don't know, one thing that, that always fascinated me about Ruby on Rails when I when I first heard about it was like their ability of of overriding the the error handling to effectively generate dynamic methods that didn't actually exist, but based on the way that you call them, they can figure out what you want to do and then do that. You could potentially do something like that, I guess. It'd be weird because you'd get a whole bunch of developer time errors, but like you could technically with zero runtime cost generate code like that based on how you're seeing an AST, I wonder. We're kind of seeing that a little bit in Dojo, right? Where depending on what imports you have, it will compile types for those imports, right? So you actually need to import certain things into your file, then it will create types for them. Then you can actually work with those types. So I think I think that's kind of similar to what you're talking about, where you can call something that doesn't exist, it gets saved, whatever your watcher or whatever your, your build system sees that in the AST, creates a function for it, right? Which, I mean, that seems like a lot of fun. That seems like a it'd be a very creative <laughs> thing to try sometime. Yeah. And I guess to that to that end, like the probably a I don't know again, but maybe a really simple example of that might be the way that DTS files are generated for your CSS. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's not it's not a function call, but it's saying like I have a file that you can conceivably create types for. When I import it, could you create types for it? Yeah. <laughs> and then they suddenly appear. See, even when I don't think I'm using an AST, it's being used. <laughs> They're everywhere. <laughs> huh. It would be good to be able to understand code and then put out tests for it, you know, identifying all of the, the branches and, and types and data that go into a piece of code. And then just if you know a string is supposed to go somewhere, then you should be able to automatically make a test that puts in a random string. Yeah. Same thing with conditionals. If you can say like, oh, this is a conditional, I need to make two tests, one for each branch of this conditional. Yeah, you could just have it so that the the inputs are all automated in code and then you have to provide the outputs, right? That's kind of what you're thinking. Like I can go through the code and I could say like, in order to hit all these branches, I need to pass these inputs and that'll just run it, right? Yeah, and you could... You could also potentially identify what your expectations are on your outputs, though, as well. Like, at the very least, you can be like, oh, this is a non-null output, or, oh, this is undefined, or, you know, it wouldn't be as good as a human-produced test, but it's free. If, you know, once you have enough automation behind it, it eventually the cost dropped to zero to, to write your AST that does all that. Yeah, it's fun. And I hate writing tests, so... <laughs> <laughs> Or at the very least, hate identifying what branches need to be covered, you know? Well, I hate writing non-important tests. That's where uh, this sort of system can write non-important tests for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wait, what? what's a non-important test? 
I guess what I'm saying is like, if you only have eight hours in the day, then you have a limited number of tests you can write. So you want to write the, the tests that are checking for the most likely things to happen. But by automating some of this stuff, you can start hitting on those things that you, like the unknown unknowns, right? In terms of that, that grid, right? You have known unknowns and then you have the unknown unknowns and, and that that's where it's really, that's where the AST approach can really help. But I think you also just justified the existence of TypeScript. As well as the important stuff. You can automate both. <laughs> I think you just justified the existence of TypeScript. Like that's what TypeScript is doing, right? There's a whole slew of tests that you would write to make sure that, you know, you're testing. If I, I need to pass the right inputs to this function and I get these outputs, that's what TypeScript is, is doing. And it's using an AST to do it. Yeah, I totally hear you, Neil. There's a lot of tests that are like, if this condition, then console log. And you're like, okay, come on. I, do I need to write a test on this? Or you, you should, but you know it, it definitely doesn't feel right. But having it automated would be very liberating. You can be like, okay, well, if anybody writes code in this section now or they need to migrate it, at least we can ensure the functionality persists in that, that very small slice, in that, that part that I don't really care about right now. But in the future, it may become relevant. So there are no unimportant tests, but there are tedious or small tests. <laughs> That's true. Cool. So I can't wait for automatic tests to be written for me. Which one of us is working on that? I mean, I, I really want to learn AST after talking about this. Like I was saying, the thing that interests me the most is just identifying things that I think are problems. It happens pretty regularly where I'm writing code and I, I see something and I'm like, hmm, someone seems to have misunderstood this. And then I, I try to say like, well, how do I see if it's been misunderstood anywhere else, right? And so I'll do things like try to find wherever this function is called, but then I get a thousand results. And I'm like, oh, but I want to know where they called it with, you know, a string that looks like this instead of a string that looks like this. Are you talking about like an anti-pattern in the code? Like give, give me a, a hard example. Okay. So a hard example, I have all my things in the queue for bug of the week. Um <laughs> So there's this bit of code in one of our projects that sort of relies on a fully formed date string with no time on the end of it. So just 2020-0301, right? With no time. So just that's it. And if you create a date from that, it assumes that it's that date at UTC time. So then if you, when you go to parse it, you then have to assume that it needs to be cast to UTC in order for you to read the date. But as soon as you add, like, if, as soon as you say 2020-0301-1201, or even 00, then it starts giving it a time, a time zone. So then if you try to call the function with a date that's been created using a time zone and then it tries to cast it at UTC, then now you have a different date. So I'm curious, like what parts of the code call this function in this way? And then do they use that result to then call another piece of code with that incorrect value, right? Like I run into these things where like, I can't write a regular expression to do that. That could be a linter all on its own, Neil. Did you use date? <laughs> Did you use dates correctly? It's the weirdest, it's the weirdest bug. I mean, not to get on, on this. It's not a bug. It's a feature. It's a thing. <laughs> But yeah, getting UTC time from a date with no, that was not created using a time gives you no time zone. Yeah, that if we get a parser for that and stateful regular expressions, 
I think we could get a lot of like minute bugs out mm. of the way. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's that's the important thing to take away is that whenever you have a problem that you're trying to solve where you need to have a deep understanding of code, an AST is the perfect solution for that, as opposed to something like a regular expression, which might be able to do the job. It might be able to do it well in many cases, but it probably can't be guaranteed in all cases. Yeah, or especially when you do something like a robot would be well suited for. You can automate that rather than having your regular expression do it and then having to go back and check to make sure everything was caught or having human labor at all because we're bad at things we're bad at lots of things that's true <laughs> repetitive tasks is among the top that we're bad speak, at. speak for yourself no, i'm kidding reading the entire code base of a project and creating an ast in our heads and then navigating it <laughs> we're bad at that reliably right humans are very <laughs> unreliable compared to computers <laughs> just give me a couple give me a couple weeks and i'll i'll do that I mean, computers are only as reliable as the people who program them, right? Well, computers are 100% reliable to do what they're told. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's yeah. true. <laughs> 100%. Which, like, if, I mean, as long as you don't have, like, cosmic rays blasting your computer <laughs> right. or, like, you know. Or, or faulty hardware or, you know. Yeah. What is it, bit? Is it bit degradation or bit, bit rot? Bit rot, yeah. Yeah, effectively 100%. <laughs> way, way more. Many, 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 many more times than humans you know are they better at (laughs) well i think that's all we have time for this week nick thanks for the topic this was fun it was educational brought up some good memories of the trials that i've had in the past and i'm gonna go cry in my pillow tonight we'll release that as a bonus episode right (laughs) just me (laughs) crying it'll be an asmr (laughs) episode all right and with that Until next time, stay type safe. Thanks for listening to the TalkScript podcast. You can round out your TalkScript experience by viewing our show notes, listening to past episodes, subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, and of course, following us on Twitter at TalkScript. We record new episodes every other week. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of TalkScript, a superset of a podcast about JavaScript. We've got a good thing going on.